Are you a software professional looking to make a lasting impact on people and the planet? At General Motors, our vision is a world with zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. And we need innovative people like you to join us on this journey and challenge the limits of what is possible. From autonomous cars to software-defined vehicles, you'll translate breakthrough technologies like AI into experiences that people love, all while pushing the world forward toward an all-electric future. See how you can shape the future of mobility at careers.gm.com. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. The Bowery Boys episode 394, New York Calling, A History of the Telephone. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And a quick note before we hop on the history of the telephone, we have a couple of live events that we have planned in New York City that we want you to know about. On Thursday, September 1st, 2022, Greg and I will be at Caveat on the Lower East Side with a live podcast recording on a top secret subject. Mm -hmm. You can get tickets for both the live in-person event and for an exclusive live stream that night by going to caveat.nyc. That's September 1st, 2022 at 7 p.m. And we'll also be bringing back our live ghost stories of old New York. Bringing back that show, back to the cabaret stage of Joe's Pub at the Public Theater. So one show on October 30th, 2022, and two on Halloween night, October 31st. And the shows sell out quickly. So get your tickets now by visiting publictheater.org. Or, Greg, you can always call the box office. Hmm. Call the box office, which mm-hmm. leads us to the subject of this week's show, the telephone. And no, we don't mean the small, shiny computer that's in your pocket right now <laughs> that you occasionally use to make voice calls. Uh, but we're talking about the old-fashioned telephone with the headset and the curly cable and the dial tone. Over the past year, the city of New York has been removing almost all of the phone booths from the streets. Who doesn't have fond memories of using a New York City payphone with Mm. gum on the earpiece and extremely (laughs) vulgar messages written on the box? Putting in those quarters. This news got us thinking about how the telephone has actually helped change New York. Ever since Alexander Graham Bell brought his first model telephone to Manhattan 145 years ago, the telephone has connected New Yorkers, you know, helping us make plans, share urgent news. It's allowed us to still feel close while even allowing people to move away from each other. Because thanks to Ma Bell, you can always reach out and touch someone down the street, in another borough, or even halfway around the world. Now, this is a national story, of course. It's one of patents and mergers Mm -hmm. of Bell Telephone's monopoly over the business for over 100 years. 
But it's a local story too, stories of sassy switchboard operators, big shiny art deco towers, and the ever-changing New York phone number. So if you are of a certain age, just think back for a moment to how important the telephone has been to you. Remember, I mean, how did we used to meet up in the East Village before we had cell phones. Well, we would talk on a phone, a landline, and leave a message on the answering machine with a time and place, and sometimes the message gets lost and you don't show up, so you'd leave another message. Right, and then I would use a pay phone on the street to call my answering service to figure out where (laughs) in the world you were. Um, But it was all kind of fun. Also very imprecise mm-hmm. and more casual than today. You also didn't have an expensive piece of technology to lug around, however. And more room in those pockets. <laughs> so we have much to discuss nostalgia technology and industry. So listener, please hold the line as we dial up the history of the telephone. Uh, Blondie's Call Me, a classic. I mean, Greg, text me just doesn't have the same ring to it, does it? I I actually refuse to believe that Deborah Harry ever sends text messages. She just writes back, call Call me. me. (laughs) We have a lot to cover here. Where are we even going to start? I mean, the world before the telephone, right, the 19th century, it wasn't without its ways of communicating over long distances. Nope, we had the telegraph a system of communication over wires using electronic signals. The artist and inventor Samuel Morse built upon many decades of European innovation in this field and would develop one form of telegraphy here in New York. And then in 1844, Morse would send the very first telegraph message between Washington, D.C. and Baltimore. And this would mean then that news and financial information could be spread relatively rapidly, which was, among other things, a revolution in the press. We have an entire show talking about the early days of the Telegraph, episode number 268, which specifically uh, talks about the very first transatlantic cable, which sent messages across the Atlantic Ocean. That was late in 1858. Mm -hmm. But by that time there were thousands of miles of telegraph wires already connecting the American Northeast, sending messages using Morse code. Mm -hmm. But as you can imagine, messages were frequently garbled and quite often lost entirely. Messages could be easily mistranslated, and even worse, they could be purposely mistranslated by a receiver. So there are just many more people here. You've got the translator who has to decode the message. You've got a a messenger, a bike messenger Mm -hmm. to get it to you. You know, it just took several more steps. 
But it's the best that we had at that moment. And by the 1850s, there were hundreds of direct connections between cities and towns operated by a few major telegraph companies, most notably for our story today, Western Union, which was founded in Rochester, New York in 1851. They would be at the forefront of telegraph innovation, such as it was. And so then along comes the telephone, a far more immediate form of communication which converts sound waves into electrical signals and sends them over wires to a receiver. And when we talk about the telephone, we're of course going to talk about Alexander Graham Bell, whom everybody knows patented the first telephone here in the United States. And this is undoubtedly true. However, we have a tangent to explore first, a New York tangent, an earlier attempt at voice communication, because there were many inventions aimed at voice communication before Bell's patent. In this case, we'll be speaking about Antonio Maiucci, who was born in Florence, Italy in 1808, a theater technician and a prodigious inventor who immigrated to the United States in 1850, settling in the neighborhood of Rosebank, Staten Island, Mayuchi set up a laboratory in his basement, and it was in this house in Rosebank that he first began working on electromagnetic voice communications, or what he would call a teletorfono. In the 1850s, mm-hmm. which is, of course, way before Bell. But, but then why has he been a sort of hidden figure here in telephone history? Well, there's a few reasons, partially the reality of his lack of privilege as an Italian immigrant of modest means living in Staten Island, but there's also this real tragic element to his story. On July 30th, 1871, the Staten Island ferry Westfield exploded. He was severely injured in that explosion and had to sell most of his laboratory equipment to pay for his medical bills. Now, he did manage to apply to the U.S. government for a patent caveat, Hmm. which is kind of a promissory patent, which says, you've got this idea. It's almost all the way there. It's like a placeholder. Yes, exactly. But he didn't have an investor, and his finances were in shambles. So when his patent caveat expired in 1874, he didn't renew it. So... Would that invention, though, have have even worked on a large scale? Was it a telephone as we know it? I mean, yeah. I mean, it's just one of these big what-ifs, right? To be an inventor during this period required not only sound ideas. Oh, <laughs> in, if you will. In, in, in all meanings of that phrase, but also big connections and money, which he certainly did not have. Antonio Meucci died in Staten Island in 1889, nearly forgotten. For decades, though, the Italian Historical Society of America has fought to remember the legacy of Meucci as a trailblazing Italian-American inventor. But, you know, it's an unsettled matter for many. I would say for more information, you should go pay a visit to the Garibaldi Meucci Museum in Staten Island a house that is named for Maiucci, he lived there, and also for Giuseppe Garibaldi, the Italian revolutionary who lived in the house also in the 1850s. What a house. And it's just one of the many telecommunication landmarks that we'll mention on today's show that you can visit today. But the future of the telephone, as we know it, of course, resides with Alexander Graham Bell. Yes, 
But <laughs> I have another but. Uh-huh. Remember that phrase that I said, patent caveat. Okay. okay? So we're going to get back to that. Alexander Graham Bell was born in Scotland in 1847, and at an early age, he began working on electrical experiments in sound, notably with his father working to improve the lives of the hearing impaired. In 1870, Alec moved with his family to Ontario, Canada, and then within two years, then found himself in Boston as a teacher in a school for the hearing impaired. So then when was his inventor's... Uh Aha moment. Mm -hmm. In 1875, Bell successfully tested a device that transmitted the sound of a reed plucked upon a wire, a technical process referred to as acoustic telegraphy. Then the following year, 1876, after much experimentation in his attic laboratory with his assistant Thomas Watson, He finally managed to invent a device that could transmit the sound of a human voice over an electric wire. Bell then submitted for a proper patent for his device on February 14th, Valentine's Day, 1876. So what's the complication here? (laughs) Well, this whole patent process got rather messy really quickly because on the exact same day that Bell applied for his patent, a Chicago inventor named Elisha Gray also applied Mm. for a patent caveat for his version of an acoustic telegraph device. Now, unlike Mayuchi, Gray was a prominent businessman who co-founded the Western Electric Company, which was allied with the telegraph company Western Union. Mm -hmm. So he had the power and the connections to support his work. So, hold on. These two working telephone patents were filed on the same day (laughs) Mm -hmm. in 1876, which is, like, mind-blowing. I will note that Bell had signed off on his patent, and it had been notarized a few weeks before in January. So, it was just that their lawyers happened to submit their applications in the patent office on the same day in February. That's crazy. So I, I'm going to still say Bell finished his paperwork like weeks before. <laughs> but anyway, already here at the very start, before a single telephone was even manufactured, there was this intense legal battle brewing here, which kind of clouded the skies a bit for Mr. Bell. Gray would later submit for a proper patent in the year 1877, and the whole thing would work its way up through the court system. Meanwhile, though, you know, while all this is sorting out, both of them would actually proceed with developing these inventions into viable networks. So then how did Bell get his project even off the ground? Well, very instrumental to the business aspect of Bell's invention was his friend and partner, Gardner Green Hubbard, who would later, by the way, go on to co-found and be the very first president of the National Geographic Society, as an aside. Anyway, Gardner helped create Bell Telephone Company, which was formally founded on July 9th, 1877 in Boston, and to which all of Bell's telephone patents were assigned. Then, two days later, because there's not enough going on, Alexander Graham Bell married Gardner's daughter, Mabel, okay, Mm -hmm. Mabel, Mm -hmm. Ma Bell. No. 
No, you're right. That's actually not where the phrase comes from. It's just this very crazy coincidence that kept popping into my face every time I did my notes. An amazing coincidence. <laughs> Mob, Mabel, Mabel. Bell uh, literally married Mabel. <laughs> that is true. But it, it's interesting just given that this nickname would brand this company that would have such dominance over the lives of everyday Americans. And we should also note that Mabel herself was hearing impaired. So Bell actually met her through his teachings at the school in Boston. Mm -hmm. So it is a beautiful story. The story of Alec and Mabel Bell is really something to look into. So then how did Bell and his company get to New York? Well, a couple months earlier, in May of 1877, Bell gave a rather ornate demonstration of his telephone for an audience of 200 men at the St. Dennis Hotel on Broadway, across from Grace Church. Mm. Let me read from the New York Daily Herald the following day. Quote, Professor A. Graham Bell of Boston delivered a lecture on sound and electricity and gave a striking exhibition of his speaking telephone. A couple of wires ran through the room, across the Brooklyn Bridge, and into one of the offices of the Atlantic and Pacific Telegraph Company in that city. The professor places his ear to the box and says, Mr. Gower informs me that a player is present and will present us with an air. In a few seconds, the room is filled with the sweet strains of the last rose of summer, faint yet perceptible to every ear. Applause follows, and the lecturer tells his cooperator on the other side to thank the soloist. <laughs> And it actually continued with, like, more conversation and song. It was almost like a cabaret. <laughs> yeah, it's like the very first telephone call is basically like he's a DJ. Or it's a magic trick. That's yeah, amazing. both. And, and impressive that this wire was somehow stretched all the way over the bridge, which wasn't even completed. Not even close. No. How was that done? It was miles away. Um, well, I'm assuming it's shared space on telegraph poles, which were you know, all over the city by this time, mm -hmm. but still several miles. But let's back up for a second. How did the Bell Telephone Company even function? Well, so they were pretty crafty in a couple of respects, right? So the company held the patent for telephones. So they, they licensed the rights for this technology to regional affiliates allowing them to set up their own local telephone service in, say, New York or Chicago or New Haven, Connecticut or Philadelphia, and eventually then in every town in America of a certain size. They were allowed to use this Bell telephone technology and would become part of this larger Bell network, and they would just have to fork over a hefty commission to Bell for that license. So Bell Telephone wasn't actually running all of these local services themselves. No, they, they ran some of them in the Northeast, but most were affiliates, which is why they then fought desperately here in the 1880s and 90s to hold on to their patents, because if they lost them, they would lose all of those fees. And, and another interesting part of the deal was that customers needed to lease their telephones from Bell. They couldn't buy them or use their own phones, right, on, on their network. And they set up their own company to manufacture those telephones. And amazingly, this would remain a rule within the larger Bell network all the way up through most of the 20th century. But was the phone even practical yet? I mean, 
you know, think about it. Up till now, who are you even going to call? Like, who was the first person who got a phone? Who were they calling? <laughs> uh, that's a very important point. I mean, up until 1878, um, you could really only call your other phone, right? Like in this ex- <laughs> exhibition of bells, I mean, he was calling an, a phone on the other end, literally, of that telephone wire. Mm-hmm. Uh, your phone had a single wire coming out of it, and it went to the other phone. So you really could only call one place. <laughs> well, that makes things simple. No wrong numbers. <laughs> That's true. No bells either. No. Subscribers were kind of told to whistle into the phone really loudly so that it would come <laughs> out the other end. What? <laughs> but, you know, I mean, at this point, they were only practical for, you know, business people trying to, like, call down from their office to their house or whatever. They had one place to call. Uh, but th- this became much more practical in 1878 with the invention of the telephone exchange and and the telephone switchboard. This meant that your telephone now was literally wired to a telephone exchange where an operator could literally connect your line with whomever you were calling. Like like they literally connected the line, right? (laughs) Yes, literally. When they said, please hold while I connect the line, they were, they were literally taking your line and connecting it with another line. But this first exchange opened in January of 1878 in New Haven. And then this would be soon replicated elsewhere around the country, including New York. And, and at first, when you called, you gave the operator the name of whomever you were calling. There, was, there wasn't any need for phone numbers yet because there weren't <laughs> enough subscribers. Well, even so, this still sounds like it could lead to a lot of confusion, You know, if you were a Smith, (laughs) there were lots of Smiths or Joneses. Always getting each other's calls. Um, But it could. And in 1879, in Lowell, Massachusetts, the the local telephone company started assigning numbers to its customers. Because, as a matter of fact, there was a measles outbreak in Lowell. And a local doctor warned that if all four of the city's operators were out sick with the measles, their substitutes wouldn't have any idea how to connect Mm. the subscribers. This all seems very on the fly, very Wild West a little bit. Wait, hold on. You think that's on the fly? Consider this. Western Union was also operating its own competing telephone service using Gray's technology, which allowed them to get around that, you know, Mm -hmm. the the Bell patent. So that meant that most cities that were served by Western Union and the whole country was served right by Western Union telegraph lines could also offer telephone service, or, or and there were also other independent companies. And most of these towns were also offering local bell service. So for a time here, that meant that most cities of a certain size had multiple phone carriers that didn't connect with each other. So how did you call a customer who was subscribed to the other service? You couldn't. I mean, you could if you had two phones, one for each service. And, and they weren't cheap. Yeah, I saw one report actually from 1881 that declared that an annual phone fee was $125 back then, which today is around $3,600 a year, okay, in today's money. That's crazy. Down here in New York in 1878, the Metropolitan Telephone and Telegraph Company, Mm -hmm. with a license from Bell, began stringing its own lines above ground to its... 250 or so Manhattan customers, and eventually out to Brooklyn, all connected to an exchange Mm -hmm. or a network switchboard that was located at 82 Nassau Street, south of City Hall. But as you inferred, 
Western Union, who was working with Thomas Edison's company, <laughs> using Gray's telephone patents. Okay, uh -huh. that's not confusing. I'm glad you got him in <laughs> yes. on this too. He, he, he yeah. pops in for just a moment. They opened a rival telephone service in New York City. Parallel to what you just said, that company was known nationally as the American Speaking Telephone Company. They had a New York telephone exchange at 198 Broadway. So you got that? So two systems here. <laughs> well, fortunately, this whole mess got cleared up a bit in 1879 when in a business coup, Bell Telephone actually bought out Western Union's telephone business, the whole thing including all of their customers and this Edison technology, which, by the way, had an improved carbon mouthpiece, and then changed its name, the whole company's name, to the American Bell Telephone Company. And so the two companies in New York then also merged. Yes, with this new company simply called the Metropolitan Telephone and Telegraph Company until 1896, when it gobbled up some suburban services and became the New York Telephone Company. So just to be clear here, by 1896, this New York Telephone Company mm -hmm. ran the local service here in New York for the American Bell Company. Exactly. And, and the company thrived during the 1880s and 90s as New Yorkers really took to their phones, unsurprisingly. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, they were, these landlines were adopted especially quickly by businesses, you know, who could, who could now immediately contact their partners, their warehouses, they could do deals, they could report news, they could buy stock. In fact, the stock exchange got its first phone right off the bat in 1879. Oh, sure. And on and on. I mean, it's easy to see how this made so much sense here. Transactions that used to require that slow telegram or messenger boy now could be handled instantly. So a communication revolution was occurring here in the Gilded Age. But I know that it also changed the way that New York City looked, mm -hmm. right? It came with some baggage, mm -hmm. some, well, some overhead baggage. If you will. <laughs> if you will. <laughs> yes. But Greg, let's follow the wire. Yes, okay. I love the wire. Yes. Down to the wire. <laughs> Say you've got a telephone in your office. It was connected to a telephone wire, which early on went out the window and up the side of the building to the roof. Mm. And from there, it was strung up on an antenna from which it was then connected to the Metropolitan Telephone's office. Imagine how this wire needed to snake around overhead, over other buildings, over streets, in order to make that connection to their office, to their switchboard. Once it made its way to the Metropolitan Telephone Office, then it would hook into their antenna and snake down the side of their building and into the exchange, into the switchboard. And you're just one customer. Imagine all of the telephones, all of the wires making the same route. I mean, the photos from this era are extraordinary. The The number of telephone wires mm -hmm. above head in Manhattan, it's Insane. It is almost like a ladder, somewhere up to 90 feet tall, just mm -hmm. dozens of wires, you know, hanging off of it. I guess some people thought this was progress, like they thought this was the way to go. Some did, but most complained. By the 1880s, it was being referred to as the wire nuisance. 
Already in 1881, when a snowstorm hit New York in January, the New York Times blasted the telephone and telegraph companies for endangering New Yorkers, you know, with all of the downed lines and the broken telephone poles. It was dangerous. They wrote on January 23rd, 1881, quote, The lesson of the day's havoc ought to be heeded. Though regard for public safety might never move them to the adoption of some more secure and better way of placing the wires, they ought never to run through the air, but underground, out of sight and out of the way. And they wrote that this was even made worse because of, quote, the enormous increase in the number of wires since telephones came into general use. They've become, they wrote, quote, indispensable necessities. And when exactly was this? 1881. But meanwhile, wouldn't these overhead wires pick up interference from other types of cables, you know, like electrical Mm -hmm. wires? Yeah, right. Yes, they would. So, So the obvious solution, as the Times was already pointing out, was to bury them. Understandably... A extremely expensive option. Mm -hmm. So who would pay for this? Well, the state legislature didn't care. They passed a law in 1884 demanding that all of the wires be buried by the following November. But nothing happened. And the poles kept rising higher and higher. Like you said, some of them 90 feet tall. The blizzard of 1888, however, knocked down so many of the lines all over the city and wiped out telephone service from March until May of that year. So this really then became an urgent issue. Fortunately, the city streets were at that time being dug up for other utilities, right? There there was steam heat, like we've talked about Mm -hmm. before, going in. There was electricity that was starting to happen. So and, and also for the upcoming subway construction. So by the 1880s, these phone lines were already starting to go underground. They were getting buried sometimes with other utilities. And there was a company called the Empire City Subway that was formed in 1891. And as the author Kate Asher points out in her excellent book on New York City infrastructure, The Works, The company, Empire City Subway, was given exclusive right to, quote, build and lease underground infrastructure for all communication services in Manhattan. And and believe it or not, they are still at it today. And you can even spot their manholes, Greg, by the way. Just look for the ECS, Empire City Subway, stamped on those manhole covers. You know that those are there to access those underground communication networks. So that company, Empire State Subway, actually predates the actual subway. Yes, it does. <laughs> by, you know, by over a decade. Wow. But burying these wires also meant that the telephone exchange buildings themselves needed to be much different, you know, mm-hmm. in order to access those underground utility conduits. Yes, and in 1885, then the Metropolitan Telephone Company built a new headquarters at 18 Cortland Street, which did exactly that. There were no more wires coming down from the roof. Okay, so this is the local service, right? This Mm -hmm. is if you're just calling up town or whatever. But what about long distance? I mean, could you could you call another city at this time? Well, obviously, yeah, customers wanted to do that. And and this was a real opportunity for American Bell because they had all of those regional and local affiliates, right? Mm -hmm. They could link them together and then offer the ability to call from one city to another. 
but the most obvious statement ever spoken by me, those would take very long lines <laughs> to do it. that. That is exactly <laughs> what it took. And in fact, they called this division their long lines <laughs> division. Today, we call it long distance. But yes. in the biz, Greg, it's it, called long, long lines. lines. Okay. Yes. In the 1880s, American Bell created this new subsidiary that was devoted to these long lines and named it the American Telephone and Telegraph Company, or AT&T. How quickly then did they get those long distance lines running? Well, it didn't happen all at once. They had to string the lines. Uh, Boston was connected to New York by 1884. Uh, They'd reached Chicago by 1892. But New Yorkers wouldn't be able to call San Francisco until 1915. So was Bell Telephone, Mm -hmm. Ma Bell, were they still based in Boston by the beginning of the 20th century? Well, the corporate laws in Massachusetts were more restrictive about raising capital. Uh, So the company decided that New York would make more sense. And so in 1899, they transferred the assets of the American Bell Telephone Company over to its New York City subsidiary, AT&T, thus bestowing upon the entire company the name American Telephone and Telegraph Company, or AT&T, which was then now headquartered in New York City. And AT&T would actually acquire um, New York Telephone, the local service, in 1909. Uh, the, the local service would keep its own name. And AT&T would also build a beautiful new headquarters for itself at 195 Broadway at Fulton Street in the 19-teens, and they would remain there until 1984. So this sounds like quite a corporate colossus here. Was there any competition at all? I mean, any? Yes, but nobody as big as they were. Now, that original Bell patent expired in 1893 and another the next year. But the company kept innovating and improving their service and developing new patents. Uh, They bought out competitors, like they bought out Western Union in 1909. And did this cause any concern on any like government federal level? I mean, shouldn't in a way, couldn't you also say that the phone company should be run by the federal government, maybe? Some thought that it should be. And in fact, in many other countries, that's exactly what was happening. Bell had been accused of being a monopoly already in 1907. And in fact, they settled with the government in 1913 and agreed not to buy up competitors in local markets. And and they also agreed to divest itself of Western Union. So that turned out to be a good move for local companies, but also good for Bell, because it then kept the government out of its business and basically let it continue on as this, quote, natural monopoly for the next seven decades. Alexander Graham Bell died on August 2nd 1922, with his company in total control of the telephone industry. But but I also think that this date marks a new age for the development of the telephone. There is a new Roaring Twenties prosperity that meant a great expansion of telephone service nationally, but also here in New York City. We'll look at how the telephone transformed the city after this. Are you a software professional looking to make a lasting impact on people and the planet? 
At General Motors, our vision is a world with zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. And we need innovative people like you to join us on this journey and challenge the limits of what is possible. From autonomous cars to software-defined vehicles, you'll translate breakthrough technologies like AI into experiences that people love, all while pushing the world forward toward an all-electric future. See how you can shape the future of mobility at careers.gm.com. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Today's show is brought to you by the podcast For the Ages. The New York Historical Society produces a must-listen-to podcast exploring the rich and complex history of the United States. Host David M. Rubenstein engages the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers in conversations on a wide range of topics, including presidential biography, the nation's founding, and the people who have shaped the American story. Historian Ted Widmer will tell you about the two 13th Amendments, one for slavery and one against, that still exist. Did you know the Nazis copied the U.S. in the 1930s because they thought we'd perfected the caste system? 
Isabel Wilkerson compares the US, India, and Germany and discusses all the missed opportunities due to the US dehumanization process of slavery over 246 years and 12 generations. Presidential historian Michael Beschloss examines declarations of war and why presidents turn to resolutions instead after 1942. Did you know that nine years of war in Vietnam was caused by a congressional resolution based on an incident that LBJ knew never happened? For the Ages, available on Apple and Spotify. Black. You want to talk to Mr. Gutterman? One moment, sir. I'll connect you. Uh, Welcome, Gutterman, Affwhite, Bibbin, Black. Oh, oh, yes, Mr. Bibbin. You'd like to talk to Mr. Affwhite? Yes, sir. He's in our connection. Oh, uh, uh, uh. Welcome, Gutterman, Affwhite, Bibbin, Bibbin, Black. Oh, yes, long distance. How are you? Uh, oh, uh, uh, Mr. Whittacombe, I, I have your San Francisco call for you. Uh, yes, Mr. Bibbin? Oh. Did I connect you with Mr. Gutterman instead of Mr. Applewhite? Oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Bibbicum. Uh, bib, 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 bib. Oh, Mr. Applewhite, what are you doing in that hole with Mr. Gutterman? Yes, Mr. Whittacombe? That was a little anti-mame for you, some Rosalind Russell at the telephone switchboards. The Jazz Age saw a massive expansion of telephone service here in New York City. By the end of the 1920s, there would be around 1 million telephones in the city, yeah. or one phone for every seven residents. Wow. Well, there was also you know, massive population growth in the boroughs at the same time. And practically speaking, families who had once lived close together, whether it be in the mansions of Fifth Avenue or down on the Lower East Side, were now spreading farther apart, which also made the telephone a kind of personal necessity. For working class people in New York, greater access to a telephone was now possible where it wasn't before. You know, if not necessarily in their homes yet, then you could find phones in diners and delis, office buildings. There were actually 75,000 public telephones available in New York City by the mid-1920s. Wow. And of course, some of those were also telephone booths. Mm -hmm. You know, they were all over the place. Those iconic wooden 1920s telephone booths. Sometimes dashing men would change clothes in these telephone booths <laughs> and come out Superman. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird. It's a plane. It's Superman. Yes, it's Superman. Of course, not everybody found this convenience all that enchanting. In 1925, the New York Daily News published a shocking article with the headline, quote, phone booths bared as plague pits. <laughs> we think that the tabloids are crazy today. This was the first paragraph. Do you know that every time you pick up a telephone receiver in a public booth in New York City and press your lips against the transmitter, you are flirting with a cot in the fever ward of Bellevue? <laughs> Panicked, panicked writing. This might be slightly embellishing the risk. However, 
During this period of outbreaks when people were especially worried, there were removable receivers Mm. and people would actually take receivers in their pockets. They would carry around their own personal receiver that they could screw into telephones. So people did have phones in their pockets a hundred years ago. (laughs) Just they couldn't really talk to anybody, (laughs) but they could keep themselves fever free. But back up, you're painting a picture here of New York buzzing with telephonic Mm -hmm. activity. So this growth then would have required an incredibly large workforce of operators. Mm -hmm. Yes. Now, we do start to see some phones with direct dialing in the 1920s, and I'm going to speak about that in a moment. Okay. But the bulk of phone calls still required operators to connect calls, and most of those operators were women. By 1930, there were almost a quarter of a million women employed as phone operators in the United States. I would even say that there's kind of a mythos by this time surrounding the telephone operator, like the sort of who this woman was, a sort of no-nonsense lady, uh, similar to, do you remember Ernestine the Operator, the character made famous by Lily Tomlin? One (laughs) rinny-dinny. Hello. Have I reached the party to whom I am speaking? Is is this General Motors? Hi, General. How's everything at the Pentagon? So tell me, how's Mrs. Motors? Oh, I, I beg your pardon. You you are the president of the General Motors of Motown fame? Of course. Of course, now I recall General Motors. That's a switch, isn't it? Somebody recalling General Motors? <laughs> But the reality was, is it was hard work, nonstop. Employers paid women less. They worked long hours. And they always had to be on, which is very tricky. In 1922, the New York Times ran a confessional article from a telephone operator who began her piece by announcing, quote, let it be known confidentially that nobody can hide their true character from a telephone operator. Oh, this is going to be good. <laughs> so she she then goes on to describe various types of people who call into the operator. It's a very long article. I'm just going to highlight a few. So these are the people waiting to be patched in. You had the, quote, phone masher or flirt, oh. quote, who offers to play his phonograph near the phone to help while away the operator's idle moments. I think that was sort of like, <laughs> like with the ro- eye rolling. There is the man who talks with a cigar in his mouth and expects us to translate the grunts which reach our ears into the number he desires. Yuck. <laughs> then there is the woman who confidentially tells the operator her whole life story before she finally divulges her number. From a cozy apartment in the Bronx, she wishes to call up her sister in Westchester. She won't take no for a don't answer and insists that her sister could not possibly be out. There must be some mistake in the number the operator is ringing. If the line of her sister in Westchester is busy, the woman from the Bronx will plead, is the line very busy, operator? Anyway, it just goes on and on. I mean, you just, you kind of like see the enormous trials and also the mindset that one must take to be a successful telephone operator. 
But you also get an idea, colorful as that story is, it's this whole process of operators and switchboards is extremely labor-intensive. Yes, with this increased number of calls, it required a further standardized number system. It just had to be streamlined. In December of 1920, all phone numbers in New York became four digits, okay? And then just 10 years later, 1930, they became five-digit numbers with a two-letter prefix to indicate the particular exchange that you were calling, okay? Mm. Now, to use an example that we've already visited last year and a very famous one, you picked up the receiver and you asked the operator to connect you to the Hotel Pennsylvania by saying... Pennsylvania 65,000, please, which, of course, is P-E, right? The two Pens- letters, mm-hmm. P-E 65,000. Another example from the TV show I Love Lucy, uh, Lucy and Ricky Ricardo, their phone number was Murray Hill 59975 or M-U- some of these are really confusing. MU stands for Murray Murray Hill. MU59975. I have, I have. You know what I've always thought about Betty and Jack. Yeah, well, I've always said if there was ever any. Lucy, in the world, Lucy, for goodness sakes, get off the phone. Pardon me, Marge. Did you say something, Ricky? Yes, I said, Lucy, for goodness sakes, get off the phone. Oh. Hello, Marge. Bad connection. <laughs> Where were we? Oh, yeah, Betty. How did I forget that Lucy and Ricky lived in Murray Hill? <laughs> uh, but, but then as you progress along the decades, an easier way of calling was developed, of course. Mm-hmm. Direct dialing, that is to say direct caller to caller. And, and that even required a new kind of telephone. So prior to the 1920s, the most common form of telephone was known as the candlestick phone. That was like a simple earpiece mm-hmm. or a receiver that you held up to your ear while you held the transmitter in your hand like a microphone, like right. a karaoke. But with telephone numbers, Bell was preparing for a future where callers could directly call a person without an operator, which was ultimately cheaper for the customer and, of course, for the company. And that would require a rotary phone or a dial with numbers that you could, like, dial them yourself. The local news of the week. At midnight Saturday, the telephones in this city will be changed to dial service, and all telephone numbers will be changed. Late this week, new directories will be delivered. Here are a few important suggestions for the use of your dial telephone. Before calling any number, first secure the number from your new directory. Then remove the receiver and listen for the dial tone. It sounds like this. That tone indicates everything is ready for your call. With the receiver off the hook, dial the desired number. For example, suppose you want to dial 23650. Dial each numeral in this manner, pulling the dial around to the finger stop each time. Be sure to allow the dial to freely return to its normal position. And this is the ringing signal. So when rotary phones came along then, the two-letter exchange was interpreted as numbers. You know how they had numbers associated mm-hmm. with letters oh, that's right, on yeah. the dial. So Pennsylvania 65000, PE65000, then became 736500. And I believe that the Hotel Pennsylvania, until its last days, kept that number, yeah, right? 212736500. Yes. It was the oldest phone number in New York, and now the hotel is gone. 
But the tall candlestick phones, would those go away? No, they actually would add dials to them. Oh, to the base of them. To the base of them. In fact, yeah, many people didn't want to get rid of their candlestick phones for a phone with a handset, mm-hmm. you know, where the receiver and the transmitter were both on the handle. Mm-hmm. You know, people like stuff not to change, right? So as a result, even as the phone number changed, these candlestick phones stuck around until the 1950s. And at the end of the show, we're even going to talk about where you can see some of those candlestick phones today. Mm -hmm. Another portal to the future was opened on January 7th, 1927, 95 years ago, when the very first transatlantic telephone call was made from the Brooklyn Times Union, quote, New York talked to London today from a common telephone high up in the telephone building at 195 Broadway, Manhattan. Walter S. Gifford, president of AT&T, spoke to Sir G. Evelyn Murray, the secretary of the British General Post Office, who was sitting in his office in London, unquote. Now, I should note that this first call actually used radio waves and not telephone wires, which would come in a few decades. However, this did open the door for international phone calls at last. And two days later, in fact, the New York Times even declared, quote, after 20 years of research, New York and London are now able to talk to each other. Telephone girls have been instructed how connections are to be made. Commercial service has actually begun, unquote. But with all of these millions of telephone calls now coming through New York, you know, this required big changes Mm -hmm. in the city's telecommunications infrastructure. In the 1920s in particular, we see the development of beautiful Art Deco buildings in service of the telephone industry. For instance, in 1927, we have the gorgeous New York headquarters for the New York Telephone Company, the local service company, at 140 West Street. That building is sometimes called the Barclay VZ Building. An incredibly bustling place with several telephone exchanges that served most of lower Manhattan. In 1930 came the Long Island headquarters of the New York Telephone Company at 101 Willoughby in downtown Brooklyn. Both of these buildings, by the way, are designed by the architect Ralph Walker. But perhaps the most important Bell Telephone structure in New York wasn't specifically for telephones. It was the Bell Telephone Laboratories at 463 West Street in the far West Village today. Uh, Now, it was actually built in the late 19th century as a headquarters for Western Electric. The telephone manufacturer. (laughs) Yes. But Bell moved in in the mid-1920s and promptly expanded it like to a campus of science, essentially. During the 1930s, then, it was connected to an elevated freight railway, which was constructed to alleviate traffic in this bustling industrial district. You're talking about the High Line here. So Bell mm-hmm. Telephone Laboratories, Bell Labs, was connected to the High Line. Yeah, they they shared, you know, they shared the cars with the meat trains and the cookie trains, <laughs> uh, all that. Although that stretch of the railway would was later demolished, you can still kind of see where the train once pulled into the mm-hmm. building. It's very cool. 
Well, anyway, at Bell Labs, they worked on all sorts of things, innovations in all electronics, not just telephones, but but also televisions mm -hmm. and transistors. It's an American science landmark. And for more information on that, visit the Bowery Boys show Digital City on the history of the video games. That's episode 210. Wait, we haven't... <laughs> We have an episode on the history of <laughs> video games? Well, um, yeah, it was a solo show. Let's call it a hidden gem. <laughs> I bet most people haven't heard it. So, But yes, I talk about Bell Labs in that show. That's great. Well, and by, by the way, today, part of the old Bell Labs building is West Beth Artist Housing, which opened in the late 1960s. Mm -hmm. Well, Tom, before we proceed to the 1960s, I do want to drop just two more important dates to New York and the telephone here, okay? So in the 1940s, to better facilitate domestic long-distance calls, okay, mm -hmm. like you want to call Cleveland or Denver or whatever, Bell initiated operator toll dialing, which automated the switching of all U.S. calls. This required, in 1947, the creation of area codes. Oh. And so in that year, New York City got its area code 212. And why 212, you may ask? Because it was actually the quickest number to dial on a rotary phone, right? Because uh, it's the same. You just yeah. boom, 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 boom. Yeah. So that's where that comes from. Then, five years later, on November 10th, 1951, the very first direct dial long distance call, okay, meeting with no operator mediating, just a direct call, that was made between Englewood, New Jersey and Alameda, California, using a full 10-digit number, okay? So the three-digit area code, and then the seven-digit phone number. Later in the 1980s, the 718 area code would come along for the outer boroughs. And believe it or not, in 1992 came the debut of the 917 area code. Mm for those pesky cell phones. Mm -hmm. And others, of course, would follow. We're looking at you, 347 <laughs> or 646. Well, okay, but back to the 1950s and 60s here, the telephone was firmly part of American culture. Yes. I mean, you know, look at the Jetsons, right? They had video phone <laughs> back in the Jetsons era. They're basically FaceTiming each other on every <laughs> <Yes>. show. <laughs> Calling the Jetsons, Jetsons. Ah, it's a phone. I'll get it. Morning, George, dear. Ah, morning, Gloria. Honey, it's your friend Gloria, the cute-looking one. Gloria? Oh, dear. I can't let her see me looking like this. I've got to put on my morning mask. I'll be right there, George. <laughs> Hi, Glor. Jane, darling, don't you look lovely? Meanwhile, back here on planet Earth, okay, we've taken the story into the 60s and the 70s, but still AT&T is the main player and making advances. Yes, here in, in New York and around the country. And I mean, I don't know about you, Greg, but in the late 70s and early 80s, growing up in Ohio, I was in a house with about four telephones, one phone number, and service that was provided, I'm trying to remember, either by Ohio Bell or by GTE. Um, GTE was General Telephone and Electric, which was actually the nation's largest independent phone company. So this monopoly that Bell held was holding on. 
It was, but but there had been challenges. Okay, the government had brought another antitrust case against AT&T in the 1940s, which they had settled in 1956. This one was over AT&T owning Western Electric, which, you know, produced all those leased telephones. Well, AT&T in the settlement was allowed to keep Western Electric, but it wasn't allowed to enter into this new burgeoning computer industry. Mm. As Columbia University professor Richard John pointed out in an excellent 2018 interview with Business Insider, as a result of this agreement, Bell Labs then opened their vault of intellectual property related to the computer, including the transistor, which you mentioned, Mm -hmm. which had been developed at Bell Labs. So what you're saying is they gave up their rights to develop computers Mm -hmm. in order to continue operating the telephone. And thus, the very first cell phone call was made on April 3rd, 1973 from a two and a half pound prototype of a portable phone, not made by Bell, but by Motorola. An engineer named Martin Cooper used this hulking mess of phone to make a call from 6th Avenue in New York to Bell Labs in New Jersey. Perhaps to rub it in? Who can say? But this phone, this portable phone, would not be truly desirable and affordable for another couple decades. And, you know, for Bell here in the 1970s, the relinquishing of their intellectual properties seemed to actually be a good move, right, back then, at least in the short term. Yes, because here in the 50s and 60s and 70s, this company was in its heyday, employing more than a million people. And into the 1970s, I mean, the company would push forward with a number of massive building projects, including two enormous new switching stations that were located downtown that are still very easy to spot. Oh, I know these scary tall buildings. Sometimes they appear in my nightmares. (laughs) Actually, I love them very much, but they are both very strange. They're both very brutal. (laughs) Yes. Brutalist. Mm -hmm. We're talking about 33 Thomas Street, which is a, a 29-floor brutalist structure that was designed by John Warnicke and completed in 1974. It was known as the AT&T Long Lines Building and housed switching machines that really kind of ran AT&T's long-distance service. Um, and it's still a switching station today, and it's also home to data centers. I mean, and when you say brutalist, yeah. you mean it. Like there, there are no, there are no windows on this building. No, just giant slabs of concrete. And this was, of course, intentional. You know, all of that solid concrete made it a very secure building, able to withstand any kind of calamity. And they were prepared for that, obviously, here during the Cold War. And let us not confuse this hulking switching (laughs) center for another, which is located just north of the Brooklyn Bridge, which was constructed for the New York Telephone Company, the local service company, and opened in 1975. One big difference between them is this one actually has windows, I think. Yes, it It does. does today. It was built with three foot wide slits that kind of went all the way up and down. It would be purchased in 2007 and renovated then in 2016 
to incorporate more windows on upper floors. And it is home today to a variety of office tenants and some telephone-related services. So these two huge structures went up during the 1970s during the city's financial crisis. Yes, and actually there was one more biggie because in 1978, AT&T commissioned architect Philip Johnson to design a new postmodern corporate headquarters for AT&T at 550 Madison Avenue. Remember, they were still down at 195 Broadway. And this new structure, 550 Madison, would be ready for them to move into in 1984. However, in the meantime, the U.S. government, federal regulators, were bringing another antitrust case against the company. This would ultimately be settled through another consent decree in 1982, which would force AT&T to divest itself of all of its regional Bell operating companies. And that would go into effect in 1984. And is this where we get back to uh, Miss Ma Bell? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Ma Bell and Baby Bell. Basically, Ma Bell, the original AT&T, had to say goodbye to all of her babies. More precisely, all the local service companies were split into these regional bells, which then were called baby bells. Not to be confused with the small cheese snack, the little (laughs) baby bell goudas. AT&T was allowed to get back into the computer business, although by now many analysts were wondering if this hulking monopoly that really functioned by this point more like a government agency would be capable of operating like a new tech startup company, Mm -hmm. right? They just weren't as flexible. They didn't have the same mentality. But they were now allowed to get into the computer business by giving up all of that local service. AT&T was basically betting that the future would be about long distance, hard wires traveling across the country. That's where the money was. And and also along the way, they were giving up cellular spectrum, okay? They didn't need that as well. <laughs> so there were a couple bad gambles that would happen here in the 80s and in the 90s. AT&T put its money on the wrong technology, as did tons of investors, billions of dollars, People thought that the future was still hardwired. It was really only some innovators out there, some people who were thought of as kind of kooky at -hmm. the time, who thought that Americans would be going and the world would be going in this other direction that was about cellular service, not about landlines. (laughs) And now AT&T had to deal with competition in the 1980s. Yeah, I mean, remember all the ads we sat through? (laughs) Yes. I switched over to Sprint for my long distance. Candace Bergen for Sprint. Murphy Brown. (laughs) Murphy Brown herself. Switched to Sprint. This is the plan for the B-2 bomber. This is the structure of DNA. This is a long-distance calling plan. What do they all have in common? You can't understand any one of them. Fortunately, Sprint can decipher long-distance for you. With priority service, they'll review your account and let you know if you're on the right plan. It's that easy. Yes, it was all about that. And of course, AT&T's business then suffered in a big way and really shrunk. And in 1993, AT&T, by this point a smaller company then, moved out of their new headquarters on Madison Avenue 
and were replaced in that building by Sony. Yes, where um, I worked. We both worked, actually. That, well, the I attempt. <laughs> you, you, you had a career. I worked there for, for years, but the building is sometimes called the Chippendale building mm-hmm. because it looks like an old chair, not because it's a, it's a male stripper. <laughs> it looks like a finely made chair. Thank you for that clarification. (laughs) But needless to say, there have been many, many mergers and acquisitions by the company. Yes, and it can really make your head spin. And meanwhile, in the late 90s, AT&T then started acquiring cable TV providers and in actually in the early 2000s, spun off its wireless business to become AT&T Wireless Services, which would merge with Singular and, and finally in 2007 become AT&T Mobility. Whatever happened to New York Telephone Company, right. okay, the local carrier here in the city? Well, during the breakup in the 1980s, AT&T needed to divest itself. It was spun off as its own company and then merged with New England Telephone and Telegraph to become 9X, which then in the late 90s would be acquired by Bell Atlantic. And then in 2000, this larger company acquired General Telephone and Electric, GTE, and they called this massive new telephone company, drumroll please, Verizon. Mm. Still headquartered in New York City, now at 140 West Street, which you were just talking about. That old Art Deco building. So, in short, New York Telephone merged with many, many other companies to form Verizon. Right. Okay. So, what then is AT&T today? Back in 1984, when the company was broken up, one of these new baby bells was called Southwestern Bell. And it grew and grew and merged and bought out competitors. And then in 2005... It actually purchased AT&T. So yes, in the end of our story here, a baby bell ate up Ma Bell. It's, I mean, we're talking, this is a Greek tragedy. All right, so all of this makes my head hurt. And quite <laughs> frankly, let's just say, we just have to mention the elephant in the room because I don't even have a landline anymore. Most mm. people, some do, but most people do not. Did cell phones basically kill off the need for these local and long distance companies. But landlines aren't dead. Think of the thousands of businesses in New York. Offices use landlines because for one thing, they're often much more reliable than cell service. I don't even know if I get cell service where we're sitting right now on 39th Street. Many of the old telephone companies, by the way, also today offer broadband internet service as well. And of course, many have gotten into cellular service. So So they have needed to adapt to stay in business. Well, I certainly give several of the companies that you've rattled off here plenty of money each month. So I can attest that, you know, they're just fine, I guess. And it's funny because the way the city interacts with telephones has only deepened over time, even if the specific technology has changed a bit. I mean... New Yorkers are always on their phone. They're actually on their phones more because now you can be on your phone on the subway. (laughs) That's right. Yes. And well, because the phones are improving, the phones are literally improving New York City. Take the 311 service, right, which was introduced by Mayor Bloomberg in 2003 as a way of streamlining dozens of agency call centers into one, you know, easy to remember phone number. It has been a huge success. And I think it's beloved by New Yorkers. And, you know, what about the pay phones? Right. Of course. Yeah. I mean, there's the phone booths that you mentioned. The wooden ones would be replaced in the 1950s by those glass boxed 
phone booths. And then, you know, in the 1970s, the, the much uglier street pedestal mm-hmm. payphones. Uh, but they were really the only way to stay in touch when you weren't at home or in the office and for only 10 cents until 1984 when it jumped up to a quarter. Um, the New York Times published a piece back in May uh, with phone booth photos from its archives and noted that the busiest payphone in the city in, in 1978 handled 5,500 calls a month and was in Pennsylvania Station. <laughs> and lo- lots of cots in the fever ward of Bellevue there, uh, I'm sure. You, there was no screwing off that receiver. No. Probably you could screw it Probably. off. Who knows what was stuck in that receiver? Well, it's just, it's so weird how like the whole payphone era has almost, right, it's disappeared. It's a mm. huge component of the street that's gone. I mean, as recently as 2005, there were 30,000 payphones mm-hmm. in the city. Today, there are hardly any. Yeah. It was cell phones are a big reason why, I'm assuming. Yeah. On the walk to the studio just now, I kept thinking I was seeing payphones because I'm looking for them right now. But they were all like express bus terminal kiosk things mm-hmm. or parking meters. But about 1,200 of them have actually been replaced by Link NYC kiosks. Uh, which now offer a Wi-Fi hotspot. They let you charge your phone. They provide information. So, you know, those spaces Mm -hmm. have become relevant again. Now, if you'd like to see and experience a real-life phone booth for yourself, you can. There are still four of them standing along West End Avenue. The New York Times reported about them in 2016, and the website Westside Rag visited them just three months ago. According to their website, quote, none of the booths had doors. Three of the phones had dial tones. One was dead. We only had one quarter, which the phone ingested, then asked for 50 cents more, then went silent, unquote. So what sounds a, like a payphone. What, a, what an end for the legacy of the phone booth. Another place where you can experience a payphone is the Museum of the City of New York, which recently opened an excellent exhibit called Analog City, which explores how pre-digital technologies like the telephone and others helped the city thrive. And it does feature a payphone that stood until recently in Times Square. Yes, it was a very busy phone in its previous <laughs> life. Um, it's a really fun exhibit, and uh, and if you enjoyed this topic today, you're certain to find that exhibition interesting. I mean... Who knew that index cards ruled New York? <laughs> I mean, seriously. So many index cards. <laughs> so many. Plus typewriters and line type machines and stock trading and so much more. You'll see all kinds of telephones. You'll see the tools that offices and businesses used before, before computers took mm-hmm. over everything. That's Analog City at the Museum of the City of New York. The exhibition is open through the end of December 2022. And they have generously provided us with an offer code uh, granting a two-for-one admission. So you can see all the exhibitions, actually. So grab a friend or two and go to their website. Get your tickets there using the offer code ANALOGCITYBB. So ANALOGCITYBB for a two-for-one offer when you book your tickets through the museum's website, mcny.org. A big thanks to our patrons on Patreon.com for supporting the show with with your monthly donations. As a thank you, we also provide you with things like information on our upcoming live shows. You find out about them before anybody else does. In fact, many of our patrons have already 
booked up some great seats to those Joe's Pub shows. You too can get in on the action. Join the party at patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. And we'd like to especially thank those who have recently joined us on Patreon. Alan T. from Manhattan, Bridget S. from New York State, Elaine E. and David F. from California, Daniel M. from Ohio, Maria M. from New Jersey, and additional patrons Reza R., Paul S., Dorian S., Rob G., Deborah A., Sam H., Sally B., JC, and Joan S. Thank you all for supporting the show on patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Thank you so much. And thank you, listener, for helping us today call up the history of the telephone in New York City. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Are you a software professional looking to make a lasting impact on people and the planet? At General Motors, our vision is a world with zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. And we need innovative people like you to join us on this journey and challenge the limits of what is possible. From autonomous cars to software-defined vehicles, you'll translate breakthrough technologies like AI into experiences that people love, all while pushing the world forward toward an all-electric future. See how you can shape the future of mobility at careers.gm.com.